even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it, is, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, please, this morning, use Jeremy as a tool to bring about the truth that is in your word. We ask your spirit to do a work this morning in our hearts, that we would submit to your word, that we would submit to your leading as we submit our lives to your, uh, your calling, Lord that we'd, we would um, conform to your will, Lord. We thank you so much for the morning we've had as a family to gather to worship in song and to look at the word together. It's in your name that we do pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, they say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery, and I actually think that's probably true. Uh, it's true because imitation is a form of honor. It's a, it's a form of respect. Um, you might even say that imitation, as it is maybe the, the highest or greatest form of flattery, imitation is perhaps even worship. We, we imitate what we love. We, we mimic it. We, we uh, impersonate it. We display it. In everything, we, we imitate we, what we love and we imitate what we admire. We imitate the people that we admire. And so the traits and the, the behaviors that, of someone else that we think highly of or that we, that we want to be like or we respect in some way, even that we would maybe perhaps worship, we want to uh, display ourselves and, and to bear out in our, own, in our own lives. It was a surprise to me one Saturday morning as I was getting ready at home to, uh, to come and to officiate a wedding here. It was a surprise to me uh, that Saturday morning what my son was doing. I had, I had gotten up that morning, and the wedding was uh, relatively early on that Saturday morning, and so I had just gone ahead and gotten dressed. I put on my wedding suit. Uh, yes, I have a wedding suit. Uh, and so I put on the wedding suit, and uh, I got out my, uh, my binder with the notes for the uh, ceremony itself and the comments that I would make in the message, and I was just kind of uh, reading through those and preparing those, and I came out into the, to the dining room of our home. I was sitting there at the table, and the next thing I know, I looked up, and there was my son, Ethan. And uh, Ethan had found a clip-on tie uh, of his own, and he had put it on his, uh, on his neck, and uh, he had some papers of his own as well. And he, he stood up and he looked at me, and he began to officiate a wedding uh, right in front of me, as if he was imitating me. And he was waving his finger and pointing it out, and, and 
pretending just to be like me, imitating me. Uh, it's probably true that his sermon was better than mine. It was certainly shorter than mine would have been. Um, but he was mimicking or imitating uh, myself. And it was a little bit scary and a little bit funny. And it was honoring uh, all at the same time in the way that he picked up on the traits that sometimes uh, I portray myself. And there's a few questions I have for him later of like, do I really do that when I preach? I don't know. Um, but uh, there it was. We, we imitate people in the way we dress and our mannerisms, uh, fashion. The world of fashion is all derivative, right? They're, we're all imitating somebody else's fashion choices and styles. And that's, that's what we've picked, our mannerisms, our speech patterns, and so on. We've, we've learned how to live life socially by constructing a world of imitation built on pieces and bits and fragments of those that we admire. I, I may be so bold as to say there's not really anything original about any of us. We're all imitating in some way or another somebody else. And the question that is raised because of that is, then who are we really imitating? Who are you imitating or mimicking in your life? I believe this is a profound question because the Scripture tells Christians Right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. And that's who we are called to imitate foremost and primarily. That the Christian life, followers of Jesus Christ, are to display, we are to image forth, we are to, to show off, to show the traits of God in our lives to one another and to the world. We are to be imitators of God. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Or maybe the better question is, how can I imitate God? We're in the series. We're looking and have been studying the book of Ephesians through the beginning of this year. So we're keeping moving right along. We're here in chapter five now of the six chapter book. And we're calling this series Community in Action. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul there declares a new identity. He, he describes for us, the church, the reality that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were alienated from God, that we were under the wrath of God, and yet God, because of his mercy, not because of anything you did or how nice you dressed up today and came to church or any good merit of your own, but all because of God's grace and kindness to us, he sent his son Jesus, who died for us and was raised to life again to adopt us into his family. God purposed and intended this before the foundation of the world. So not any one of us can say, wow, I made it to heaven on my own good stuff. Like, I, I achieved it. God's grace is given to us first. He's loved us in Christ and brought us into his family and made us his children, which we have received by faith. His grace is received by faith. And because of that, now Paul makes this shift in chapter uh, 4 through 6 to say, okay, because we are adopted children of God in God's family and we are one family together, he's asking the question, how do we live out in the world? How do we live this new identity? If we are his children adopted in him, how do we, how do we live how do we love? How do we work? How do we operate in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities? What does this life look like in action? And the point that Paul makes here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 21 is this. That imitating God means imitating his love. Imitating God means imitating his love. The scripture is clear in describing to us who God is, and the scripture says that God is love. And if God is love, then imitating him in the world means that we are imitating his love. It means that we are living as Christ would live, displaying who he is, loving what he loves, hating what he hates, being 
as I said last week, Christ-like. Well, why is that the case? It's because of who we are. We imitate God, not to earn things from God, but because of who we are. And this is what he says very clearly there in verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Not to become beloved children, but because you are already by faith in Christ, by his grace given to us, his undeserved love, because as you've received Jesus, you are in him, you are his children. And so because you are his children, maybe a way I could paraphrase that is look like your father. Look like your heavenly father. Like display him, mimic him, imitate him. Imitating God means imitating his love. Why? Because we are his children and he is our father. So again, I want to ask the practical question of that. Well, what does that really look like? How do I really imitate him? How do I imitate his love, God is love? And so how do I, how do I bear that out? How do I live that out in the midst of my life? Well, Paul shows us in these verses are three practical ways that we would display or imitate the love of God in our lives, day to day in the world. And I want to pull these out for us so that we see them and so that we can begin to imitate God in his love. The first one is there in verses two through six. We imitate God in his love by our conduct towards our neighbor. The way that we relate to each other. The scripture throws the doors open on who is our neighbor. It says anyone who we have the opportunity to be in the sphere of, anyone that we have the opportunity to serve and to love. We demonstrate or display the love of God by our conduct towards our neighbors. So this is what he says. Walk in love, verse 2. Walk in love. So there's the command. Walk in love that we would display, that we would live out. When Paul uses this word walk in Ephesians, he's not just, he's not Literally, woodenly talking about how we walk down the street. He's talking about the conduct of our lives, our day-to-day practice as followers of Jesus. Walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for sin to God. Now, this is a beautiful bedrock for us to stand on. Paul doesn't just say, hey, get after loving neighbors, Imitate God, love him now as just a command, but he, but he bases that on the gospel. Why are we to love? How are we to walk in love? In the same way that God has loved us in Christ. How did, how did God love us in Christ? While we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus came for us. He humbled himself. He became a human being and lived among us. And in living among us, he lived perfectly. He won righteousness for us. Every step of Jesus' life was a step of obedience and faith and trust and righteousness towards his Father. And so in living the perfect life, he can gift to us that perfect righteousness that we need. He can make us righteous people. And so his perfect sinless life was for us and he lived that way on our behalf. And then he went to the cross on our behalf. He, bearing no sin of his own, being innocent and holy in every way, was condemned, betrayed, and rejected and taken to the cross. And there on the cross, all of our sins was imputed or transferred to him and his righteousness to us. He died in our place for your sins. The the justice that you deserve, the, the wrath of God that you and I deserve, Jesus died to avert He died to forgive. So he he loved us and he gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
He's a, he's a picture of the sacrifices of the Old Testament where they would take a ram or a goat and they would sacrifice that animal as a sin offering on the altar. And that, that aroma, that fragrance from the altar fire would go up to God as a pleasant and pleasing sacrifice. So here's the model for us. Christ has humbled himself to rescue us, to save us, to forgive us. And so we, that's his display of love towards us. So we, walking in love, display that to one another. We lower ourselves as Christ lowered himself. We sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. We live as a fragrant offering to God in the way that we love one another. That's the very positive for us. By our conduct towards our neighbor, by walking in love, we display the love of God in the world. We imitate him. But then Paul in verses three through six gives us some, some things not to do. Because as, as followers of Jesus imitating God, we need to see what is true and what is false. We need to understand the way the world wants to live and the way we as followers of Jesus ought to live. And so he says very clearly, he, says three, he talks about three particular idols in our world today. And, and these things are going to sound kind of hard for us because we don't define love this way. Paul was speaking to a culture that loved to define love in any way they chose. If that's loving to you, then go for it. But don't say it's not loving to me. It sounds a lot like our culture today. You love the things you love, but don't pick on the things I love. Now just love whatever it is. It's all love. And in that regard, it's probably none of it is love. But Paul says here, very clearly, he lays out a pattern for us to walk in. And so what does this look like? I like what R.C. Sproul has said here. Paul doesn't say, love God and do as you please. But he says, if you want to know what love demands, then pay attention to what the prime source of love requires. God's law reveals to us what is pleasing to him. So these, these commands here, what Paul shares, they aren't new things. Paul isn't making up a set of restrictions that were in place for this specific culture or time. He is just stating the timeless, true law of God's love. He's saying, here's what it is. You may remember the, the Ten Commandments speak of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. The first four commandments vertically orient us to God. The next six commandments ver or, uh, horizontally relate us to one another. And these are the things that Paul pulls out in verses three through six. The horizontal, how do we love one another? Three ways that love, uh, or three things that love is not. So first of all, Paul says that love is not living in sexual immorality. Love is not living in sexual immorality. Sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The Greek word here is the word pornea. We get our word pornography from it. What he's speaking of is any kind of sexual activity outside of God's design for sex. And that design is marriage. It's marriage between one man and one woman for life. That is God's construct, his design, his pattern for sexuality. Anything outside of that, any sexual activity or deviation from that design is the kind of sexual immorality that Paul is talking about. And he's warning us away from, he's forbidding us from. No, don't walk in that. It's including but not limited to sex before marriage, adultery, homosexuality. Paul's saying that's not the Christian way. That's not love. Shouldn't even be named among you. When he says that, he's saying it shouldn't even be the mark of the church. It shouldn't be noted among us. So the first thing is that love is not living in sexual immorality. Even though our culture says, you just do whatever you want with your body. It's your body, don't worry about it. Don't, don't pick on it, don't judge anybody else. You live how you want to live. For the Christian, Paul's saying, no, that's not God's love. 
God's love has set a design for us, and it's a good design. It's a good gift. So walk in that. Walk in that design. Furthermore, the second thing, love is not destructive talk. Love is not destructive talk. Our, our, our communication is so powerful. What we say with our words builds up or destroys. And so Paul says this. He says, no sexual immorality or all impurity must not even be named among you. And then he says in verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, here's the idea of crass, destructive, debasing, demoralizing, abusive speech. And We can be prone to this, even as followers of Jesus, that we, that we joke about sin. We turn sin into comedy in order to normalize it in our society. I mean, if you just track back at the sitcoms that have rolled out over the last 20 years, you'll notice a spiraling. It's like the toilet bowl of what we laugh at. It's because we're trying to normalize through our destructive talk, through our, our crude joking, what is evil in the sight of God. We call it today locker room talk, and then we kind of brush it off as if it, that's okay. It's not. In this context, Paul is saying that filthy, foolish talk even can be the kind of talk that's complaining, murmuring, and griping. And he follows that with the antidote of saying, let there instead be thanksgiving. Let us be grateful. Let us be glad to God. Let us give thanksgiving for what he has given to us. So love is not living in sexual immorality and love is not destructive talk. It's not using our words to overpower and condemn and to bury others. Our words should be careful about the reputation of our neighbors and those around us. Instead, there should be thanksgiving. Thirdly, love is not covetousness. It's not greed, as it were. Uh, Paul says this again in verse 3. He says, uh, let there not be covetousness. It must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And again, in verse 5, he says this, make sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Greed is idolatry. It is the love of money and possessions and things, more so than the love of God and of others. Greed is loving and wanting more than what you've been given. It's loving money. It's stockpiling more and more. It's a self-centered, self-focused life. It says it's all about me and my accumulation and my getting, and I don't care what you need. I don't care what you have. I need more, and I'm going to get more, even if I'm putting you under my feet. Now, these three could be categorized in the cultural idols that each one of us must repent of. This season, as we lead up to Easter, we've been talking about these three cultural idols, loving power or through our destructive talk, loving pleasure in sexual immorality, and loving possessions, which is greed, more than God and more than our neighbor. They must be repented of. These, these cultural idols we must lay down and refuse. We want to imitate God. We want to display our Father. Often when people see my daughter Allison and my wife Stephanie close to each other and maybe they're meeting them for the first time, they'll say to us, Allison looks a lot like her mom. She looks a lot like Stephanie. Well, yes, it's true. Why is that the case? Was it, was it because one day Allison decided, I'm going to make my appearance like mom. I'm going to contort my face in such a way so that I look like Stephanie. Is that, is that what happened? No. She looks like her mother because her genes, or her DNA, if you want to be more precise, come from her mother. She possesses those genes because that's who she's from. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
where does your genes, if you will, where does your spiritual DNA or your identity come from? Christ. And so shouldn't he be the one we are displaying in our lives? Isn't imitating God in his love mean walking in that? Not in sexual immorality, not in destructive talk, not in greed and covetousness, but displaying our Father. Now Paul gives a warning in verse 5. He says, for you may be sure of this. So this is a, this is a sure thing. This is, this is something for us to take very seriously. That every, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These things are not to be named among you, as he says in verse 3. They're not proper for the saints. They're not consistent with the Christian life. There should be no hint of these sins among the people of God. And so when he gives this warning, everyone who is, he's not saying that they've lost their salvation. He's pointing out the pattern and identity of their lives. He's saying, if this is you, if you are by the pattern of your life and there's no repentance, there's, no persi- there's a persistent rebellion, there's a persistent sin, if that's describing you, if these are the identities of your life, sexual immorality and debased talk and covetousness, you must take this warning seriously. You're not in the kingdom of God. God is holy. We, his people, should be holy. It's a warning for us as followers of Jesus to say, don't let my heart run into those things. Don't be tempted by the, the, the sexual immorality of the world, the idolatry of the world, the filthy talk of the world. But be aware, be awake. He says, furthermore, do not be deceived. There are some among us, even today, it's so amazing how the scripture speaks to today as it did so many years ago. There's some who among us would say, you know what? God is love. And so you just, just do whatever you want, just go. It doesn't matter. He's not going to judge anybody. And in fact, if God was a just God, if he, was, if he was a judging God, he wouldn't be God at all. He'd be a monster. And yet, Paul is very clear here, don't be deceived about that. God will judge. Why? Because he is holy and because he is loving. If God is not loving, then he wouldn't judge. But because he is loving and because there are victims of sin, his love requires justice to make all things right. His love requires judging the sinner and cleansing and purifying and making all things new. So don't be deceived, but because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now there again, Paul speaks of identity. He places out two camps, right? Either you've been adopted by God into his family, by his grace, which you receive through faith, not through your own work, or your son or daughter of disobedience. The wrath of God is on those who refuse and reject and will not repent. But the love of God, the grace of God, is upon those who trust and believe in him. God is holy. His people must be holy. And so walking in love means imitating him in his holiness. Our holiness begins in loving our neighbors well by not violating them, their marriages, their possessions, or their reputations. We walk in love. But secondly, as we imitate God in his love, we imitate it by the way we love our neighbors, the way we care for them, but secondly, by affirming what is good and true. And this is what Paul says in verses 7 through 14. You could maybe make this outline very simple and say the first point is walk in love, the second point is walk in light, and the third point is walk in wisdom, 
come to that in just a moment. But this second point here of walking in light is what Paul gets at there. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Because the judgment of God is, becoming, uh, is coming down on the sons of disobedience, because the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, don't be a partner with them. Don't join in their game. Don't participate in their sin. Don't head headlong into their debauchery as they're headed headlong into it. Be distinct. Be different. Affirm what is good and true. Don't become partners with them. Why? Because at one time you were darkness. So he he makes a contrast here. That was your former life. You were darkness. But now today you're light in the Lord. You're a new people. No longer darkness, but light to be radiating the light of Christ. When he uses the term partner there, he's giving us the idea of not separating us from the world. He's not talking about, hey, let's all go and build a bunker together and just like the Christians will hang out in the bunker till the apocalypse is over and then we can emerge from the top and be like, okay, it's just great. We're the only ones left. Great for us. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying in the idea of partnership, he's talking about giving ourselves to linking lives and arms. It's, It's joining in the company of their evil and sinful ways. It's It's our giving ourselves to them. We become not just spectators, but we become full-on participants with them in their sin. So Jesus is right. We must be in the world, but not of the world. Live among the world. We must live among our neighbors, but be distinct from it. Don't betray who you are. You are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. And what does the light do among us? Verse 9, the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Good and right and true, that's what we are to see and to hope bears out in our lives. How do we do that? By walking in the light. We affirm what's good in this world, what's right in our lives, what's true of this world, true of God. And how we do that? Verse 10, by trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now think about this here. By trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, we are looking to God's word and saying, is this something you love? Then I need to love it. Is this something that you hate? Then I need to hate it. Is this something that you say I should obey and follow you in? Then yes, I will obey and follow you in that. If you, this is something you say, no, that's not to be among my people. We, we take the steps to distance ourselves from that. Walking in the light means pursuing what pleases the Lord and understanding that, knowing it. It's again why we must be filled with the Spirit. We must understand His Word. We bring what is light We bring to light then what is in the darkness. So he says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Again, don't partner with them. Don't participate in sin, but instead expose the works of darkness. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's what Paul's talking about. Bring to light what is in the dark. That happens in our own lives first and foremost, that we must confess our sins. As followers of Jesus, we must bring to light the sins of our heart and our lives that we are trying to hide. As we bring them to light, we have the promise of the gospel that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are so afraid of confession because we think it means shame. When confession and confession of our sins means healing, It means restoration. It means hope. So brothers and sisters, as you're in Jesus, open up. 
Let the light shine. If you're hiding sin, it's just going to destroy you. If you bring it into the light, you'll find the grace of God. You'll find healing. You'll find restoration. There's no shame. So bring it into the light. But we must bring into light the deeds of darkness in this world as well. We, we must encourage one another when we see them in sin. As, as members of the body of Christ, Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, so we must go to our brothers and sisters in their sin and call them to faith and repentance in Jesus in love, gently, for the purpose of restoring them, restoring them back to Christ and restoring them to the church. And then we must expose the darkness of the world. We, we must shine the light on what is dark in the world. He says it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Dark places of sin in our world is shameful. But if it's exposed, it's visible. Invisible light. And Christ shines on it. So we shine the light of the truth of God in the darkness of the world in our culture. We need to do this by not passively affirming evil and darkness. And that's what we do so often as followers of Jesus. We will verbally say, I'm not for that darkness, I'm not for that sin, but there are passive steps that we are taking and living out in our life, in our culture, that we show we're in support of these things. We allow ourselves to roll with the tide of what culture thinks, what culture watches, what culture gives approval to. We just kind of say, yeah, that's what's on the TV, that's what's on my Netflix, that's what's going on in the world. Like, okay, fine. And Christ calls us to be stinked. Instead of saying this is wrong and we shouldn't participate in it, oftentimes we as Christians create a means to justify ourselves in passive partnership with it. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the last several years, um, there's been some very popular television shows and film that were produced and, and made available, and they contain all kinds of shameful acts. They made people callous to a level of debauchery that it contained within them. And, and whenever an article would be written by one of uh, the uh, Christian um, organizations like the Gospel Coalition or Desiring God, warning us and, and challenging us to think about whether we should be watching these shows or, or participating in these films, whenever that article came out, I was stunned by the backlash from Christians justifying themselves and watching those things. They were just, no, 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 you're, you're just being legalistic or judgmental or harsh. I don't see it that way. It doesn't affect me that much. I would tell you if you're paying money for it, you're supporting it. You're passively approving of it. If you're watching it, you're in it. A Christian is called to bear the fruit of light, to love what is right and good and true. And just because these shows were on the air five or so years ago doesn't mean they have stopped. They're just different ones replacing them now today. And our passive affirmation of them is our partnership with the world in those things. We should shed light on them and say, no, they're wrong. And walking truth, to walk in the light, is to affirm what is right and good and true. Paul tells us, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, put your minds on those things. Think about those things. How can you have a renewed mind? How can you imitate the mind of God when you're filling your mind with sensuality, sexuality, violence, greed, perversion. Imitating God means imitating his love. And God loves what is pure and holy because that's who he is. And so his children 
should imitate him in loving what is pure and right and true. Notice here the promise of verse 14. Anything that becomes visible is light, and therefore it says, Arise, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When we wake up to our involvement and our approval of the darkness of this world, the light shines. Christ shines. When we get our eyes on Christ, we're raised in him. We enjoy him. We, we see his light on us. We're blessed because of that. So put your eyes, to imitate God in his love means putting your eyes, putting your heart, putting your mind on the light of God. It's just fixing our hearts on him. To imitate God means affirming in his love, means affirming what is good and true. The last thing, imitating God in his love means by the wise, living the wise way of our lives. By living in wisdom might be the way to say this here. Walk in wisdom. So again in verse 15, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. So be circumspect. Think about your steps. Don't just mindlessly live your life and go, wow, that's it. He says, he says consider your life. Consider the pattern of your life. Our life is short. Consider carefully how you walk, not as unwise, not as fools, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We have this one short life. Moses said, maybe our life is 70 years, and if we're strong, we get 80. And so he prays and he says, Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to think how short they are so that we get a heart of wisdom when we consider how short our days are. And the fact that the days are evil. It is a world of raging evil against us. Wouldn't we be wise to live well in light of that? Wouldn't we be wise to live as Christ has called us to live in these short evil days? So walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Use your days well. John Piper so carefully crafted the phrase, don't waste your life. But be wise with it. How do we do that? Paul here says in verse 17, don't be foolish. First of all, understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, he's not saying there about the minutia of the will of the Lord. Like, should I wear this shirt or my blue one? Should I date that individual or marry that person? Or should I pursue that job or not? He's not talking about some of the surface minutia of our lives. Just don't wear ugly clothes. He's talking about the morality of our lives. He's speaking about what does God desire about how I live? Live to please God, understanding the will of the Lord. Pursuing the will of the Lord. So understand what the will of the Lord is. Look to his word. Understand what he has revealed to us. And then live under the influence of the Spirit, verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's calling us away from the, the control of pleasure in our lives. This, this drunkenness and debauchery, it, it's what influences and controls and informs and directs our lives. He says, no, do away with that. Do away with this drunkenness, but instead be influenced and controlled and directed by the Spirit of God, controlled by His holiness, not substances. And as we're filled with the Spirit, then verse 19, we're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here in this verse, he's talking. It's, it kind of sounds weird, like we should just walk around and kind of be singy-songy uh, to each other in some sort of weird spiritual way. Like that would just be really weird if I came to your home and you started singing at me. 
That's not what he's after here. He's saying, in the sense of our hearts, we're always living before the presence of God. And in the presence of God, we're always worshiping him. And as we're worshiping him, we're realizing we're in the presence of God together. This is the community of it. Addressing one another in worship to the Lord. Addressing one another, knowing that God is before us. That we must live before his face. And that we should build and stir up one another to love him, to make melody to him with our hearts. That giving thanks should be part of the culture of our lives. Where there's a culture of thanksgiving, there's a culture of worship to God. We see we are recipients of every good thing that he has given to us. So to live wise means that we live understanding the will of God, under the influence of the Spirit, before the face of God in community, serving one another. This is how he lands it in verse 21. Serving one another. Wise living is serving each other. So he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this word submitting here, it's not the egalitarian idea that there is no leader here and uh, just you know, we have no head, we just all run around, do what we want together. No, he, he's talking about the submission of serving. That we would, we would lower ourselves by putting others ahead of ourselves. Serving, submitting to one another out of our reverence, our, our awe, our worship of God. We love Christ. And because Christ has loved us, we love and we serve others. We, we humble ourselves for the lifting up of others. Now, this is categorically wise living. We know the will of God. We live under the control or the influence of the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. We're before the face of God in our living. We realize he sees everything we do and how we should live and worship in community, and we serve one another. That sounds like a wise life to me. Sounds like a good life to me. And that's the way of imitating the love of God in the world. So let me ask you this. Who are you imitating? Who are you displaying and mimicking in your daily life? If you were to look in the mirror spiritually as it were, who would you see? Would you see the patterns and ways of this world and this culture? Would you see the approval and affirmation of the deeds of this culture? Or would you see a distinctiveness? Uh, may I say a holiness? Because you're shining the light of Christ as he reflects his image onto you. Are you being an image bearer of the love of God by honoring your neighbor with your conduct, by turning towards affirming what is good and true, by being wise with the very short days of your life? As beloved children, be imitators of a holy and loving God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, by your grace, we give you thanks. And Holy Spirit of God, we ask this morning that you would work out this truth within us. That, that we would be imitators of God in love. Father, where your word has drawn the line for us this morning, where it's raised the bar, might you give us strength and might you give us grace to repent? Where your word has cut the line for us, might we, might we turn from our old lives, our old ways and imitate you more and more. Lord, make us a loving people. Make us a people that are wise and holy that, that display your image in the world well. That we might know the, the gladness of your smile, that we might look like our heavenly father. We love you. We want to be like you. So spirit, lead us. 
empower us and strengthen us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name.